Hey there, and welcome to episode 40. As always, I want to say a big thank you for clicking that little triangle that points to the right in order to tune in for all things movie-related, past, present, and future. In this episode, we're going to continue this Oscar series that we've had going on for the past handful, I think five of them. We began with episode 35 and looked back at a couple of Oscar contenders from 1976, including Scorsese's Taxi Driver and the eventual Best Picture champ, Rocky. And from there, we moved forward in five-year increments for each episode, going from 76 to 81 to 86 and so on, looking at the Best Picture winners and one of its co-nominees each year. The weekly polls that I put up on my socials, the public Facebook group Silver Screeners, the same name as this podcast, easy to remember, as well as Twitter at FilmBuff1974, Instagram at FrankMendoza1974, or email at SilverScreenersPod at gmail.com. This gives you the chance to cast your vote for which non-winning Best Picture nominee you want to hear about the most. Whichever co-nominee gets the most votes, that's the one we go for. That plunks us now down right into 2001, right at the beginning of the new millennium. My name is Frank, and this is Silver Screeners. This episode, we're taking a different approach. We're holding off until next time on the 2001 Best Picture winner, which was A Beautiful Mind with Russell Crowe and Jennifer Connelly. We'll hold off in your votes for one of its co-nominees as well. We're also going to hold off on last week's episode's trivia question until next time. And by the way, thank you to those of you who have sent in your answers so far. And if you haven't, no worries. Just go for it. The question was, which character in the Harry Potter franchise does British actor Rafe Fiennes play, beginning with the fourth one, The Goblet of Fire? Use the same contact info that I just gave you, the same ones for the weekly poll. But to launch the look back at the 2001 Academy Awards season, we're coming out of a different gate. Why, you may ask? Good question. That deserves a good answer. Because this time around, I am bringing on a very special guest. The very first return guest on this podcast for a conversation that'll focus primarily on 2001's Best Picture nominee, Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. But all of you listeners are not shut out. The poll I'll be putting up shortly for next time will leave out Fellowship, but it will include the remaining nominees, which were, in no particular order, the dramatic thriller In the Bedroom, starring Sissy Spacek, Tom Wilkinson, and Marissa Tomei, all Oscar-nominated for their performances, Gosford Pack, the British murder mystery written by Julian Fellows of Downton Abbey fame and starring Maggie Smith, as well as a big ensemble cast, and the splashy musical Moulin Rouge, starring Nicole Kidman in her Oscar-nominated performance as Santine, alongside Ewan McGregor. But like I said, this time around, if you've been listening to Silver Screeners for a while, you may have heard the episode from early November, this would have been episode number 29, when I spoke with a guest about 1989's Batman, starring Michael Keaton and directed by Tim Burton. Well, guess who's back? Besides Michael Keaton as Batman, that is, in the upcoming Robert Pattinson incarnation of him. That's right, back on Silver Screeners is Davey A. From the podcast, I'd give that 10 minutes. My good buddy and fellow podcast from across the Atlantic, coming our way from England, I'll let him be the one to tell you about his podcast and what it's all about. I do want to clarify, though, that our conversation is pre-recorded. We got together online on Sunday, January 30th, and I'm recording this intro in early February. Not that it really matters, but having already had the conversation with him, I can tell you right now in this moment, it's a good one. So allow me to close out this intro, as I always do, with the cinematic words of wisdom from actress Lauren Bacall. Seeing as how we're now in 2001 in this Oscar series, the relevance of her words may not be as strong, unless you're under, like, 25. But there's no way I'm leaving these words out, so I offer up to you the following food for thought. If you're under the age of 25 and saying to yourself, Damn, old movies, bring it on! then all the power to you. But if you're under the age of 25 saying to yourself, damn, old movies, no! 
Then all respect to you, but could I suggest to you the words of Ms. Bacall, it's not an old movie if you haven't seen it. So rewind 20 years back to early 2002 as the 01 Oscar season launched. The Academy Awards that year were broadcast live on the 24th of March, 2002. Jennifer Lopez was ruling the airwaves while asking all of us, ain't it funny? Ja Rule made it known on his album that he was always on time, and Enrique Iglesias was paying tribute through song to his hero. Isaac Hayes, Brenda Lee, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and the Ramones, they were all inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. By a slim vote, Switzerland joined the UN by its citizens voting in favor of. And Lord of the Rings Fellowship of the Ring was nominated for a slew of Academy Awards, which, among many other things, Dave and I will be talking about. As I've said before when bringing a guest on, I'd rather talk with them than about them, so let me go ahead and bring him on. Dave, welcome. It is so cool to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me, Frank. Hello, everyone. It's nice to be back. And as I've just been informed, just as you realize, a returning guest, although I did have fun on our previous chat, it's nice to be the first one, hopefully the first of many to come back <laughs> to your podcast. So yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, let's have some fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is what it's all about. Collaborations, podcasts, helping other podcasts out, scratching our back, as it were. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to be asked on, especially when it's about topics that I enjoy, much like the one we're about to talk about. And I'm always happy to be part of it. Anyone's podcast journey. So yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you again. My pleasure. So for episode number 40, we're trying something a little bit different. This time around, we are taking a look at Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. One of the Best Picture nominees of 2001, winner of four Academy Awards, including Best Cinematography for Andrew Lesney, Best Music for Howard Shaw, Best Makeup, and Best Visual Effects. It was also nominated for Best Picture, Best Director for Peter Jackson, Best Supporting Actor for Ian McKellen, and a slew of other technical awards as well. Based on the trilogy of books written by J.R.R. Tolkien, if I pronounced that correctly, I hope. <laughs> we'll get a little bit into the background information about how Lord of the Rings came to be, how he came up with the idea. We'll save that for a little bit later on. What we're going to do first, however, is just set the groundwork for what this movie really is all about. For those of you who may never have seen it before, or for anybody who hasn't seen it in a while, and let's face it, it's a very it's a very extended story. It's a very intricate story, lots of plot threads, lots of character names to keep track of. It's not easy. It's certainly a, a long movie to, I don't want to say endure, because it's a, a pleasurable experience, but it's a long movie based on quite an in-depth book series. There's a lot to get through, certainly characters and set pieces and scenes and stuff. Like you mentioned, it's a big book. It's a big story with lots to watch. So rightfully so, the film had to be quite lengthy. And even the extended editions, they're touching four hours, which by today's standards is like watching one of the higher end MCU movies. So it's a considerable time to watch, but it's such a big story that you need time to fill everything in. It's one of those franchises that no matter how many times you may go back and rewatch your favorite scenes on YouTube or how often you may listen to the musical score or even go back and rewatch the entire film from beginning to finish, there's always something you pick up on that you didn't notice before because the level of detail, there was just so much care and forethought put into the production of these movies. The entire trilogy was filmed back to back to back over a span of, I think it was two years, 1999 to 2001, I think it was. They were, they were released consecutively, 2001, 2002. It was a massive undertaking that you don't see all that often. 
you certainly see films that are big in scope. Just look at MC, just look at any MCU movie. But what I'm talking about is doing an entire franchise all in one big fell swoop, having that creative vision that is devoting your life to something big. Absolutely. I think it does help for continuity to have them film back to back. Certain actors, characters, they age through time. You know, if you're leaving a two, three year gap between a film, people change. People change how they look. They can't be expected to maintain an appearance for years in case of a potential sequel gets made. So it made perfect sense to film them all back to back. So the story doesn't look like there's any continuity issues. Yeah, it, it's just, it's visually stunning. Even now, you know, you're talking 20 or so years later since it came out. And it's still really watchable and a joy and a feast for the eyes. It's the landscape of New Zealand. It was just beautiful films in New Zealand, a gorgeous region of the world and converting it to Middle Earth. That is, that's the work of an artist. (laughs) Not anybody can do that. What Peter Jackson, the director has done is given us an amazing, amazing series of movies. They're going to be there for the, to stand the test of time. Yes, the books have been there a lot longer than the films, but as someone who admittedly hasn't read the books, I know, I know I'm shocked, I know. I haven't read the books, but the films, especially with the extended versions, have given me a lot more of the book content that I wasn't, wouldn't have seen in the initial release, the theatrical release. So I enjoy it. it. It's a good way for me to get most of the book's content visually. And what he's done, pretty much page for page, just reduced it onto screen. And you, you see it, as it would have been read, I imagine. Like I said, I've not read the books, but I would imagine they are, as they are described in pages and certain scenes, is how he's portrayed it onto screen. He's an avid fan of the, of the franchise. He read it meticulously before even producing the film. So what he wanted to make on screen was what he's seen on pages and how his interpretation was produced. He's a fantastic director. He's done an amazing job. I've seen other films of his too. I mean, his remake of King Kong, for example. And then, of course, in more recent years, he went back to Middle Earth and did the Hobbit trilogy. So yes, there is, it can be very easy for a story like Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit, for that matter, to be dismissed, written off as stuff for kids, the quote unquote nerd crowd, which I proudly am part of. (laughs) (laughs) There is a level of maturity and a level of sophistication to these stories that one of its biggest competing franchises at the time, the Harry Potter series, at least the beginning of the Harry Potter franchise, it just didn't have that same level of gravitas. Now, of course, I would be so bold as to say that they probably had different target audiences. I'm not saying that you had to be a kid to read and enjoy Harry Potter. I read I read all the books and I haven't been a teenager since God was a boy, but I can't say... <laughs> <laughs> but um the movies were made the harry potter movie the first few of them the christopher columbus ones were made with a little bit of there was a sense of whimsy about them you don't get a sense of whimsy with lord of the rings you have a couple of moments of comic relief the hobbits talking about always you know looking for their second breakfast or their third lunch or you know but overall, if you're talking about the the grand scope of it, there's definitely with Lord of the Rings a much more self-serious tone that serves a story like this really well. At least I think. What your thoughts may be on that? I, I, I totally agree. I totally it is definitely not aimed at a younger audience. The the story itself, the backstory is quite a serious plot and not something you can just have, you know, a young boy in a school with a magic wand sorting out. It's very teen to adult based. 
lots of scary images, lots of amazing fight scenes, quite gory scenes in from you know from what sort of action films of that kind of genre were from back in the day. Visually, there are some some images that are, that are not aimed at younger audiences. Some of the the orcs and goblins and so on are quite menacing looking and quite realistic looking. The makeup effects, like you mentioned, got awards or an award, and they look fantastic. Not aimed at children at all. The book it's based on is really descriptive and in-depth. It's quite a wide book. It's a fat book. It's a heavy book because there's so much going on inside. And like I've said, there's there's a lot of story to tell, but it's definitely something that is teen upwards in terms of age rating, in my opinion. I know over here they were aiming it at a 12-year-old or above when they released it. I don't know what the equivalent would be across the ponds. PG-13 maybe, something like that. That's um, rated here as PG-13, yeah. yeah. So it's definitely not something that children would have been able to watch. I mean, you know, these kids these days, they found ways to watch things like that. But you could tell by the way it was made that it was it was not taken lightly. It was a serious story portrayed really well and a thoroughly enjoyable journey to go on. Anybody listening, if you're not familiar with the story of Lord of the Rings, or if you're not sure what the actual premise is, the foundation of the plot, my best recommendation is to throw in the Fellowship of the Ring and at the absolute very least, listen to the opening monologue. Kate Blanchett, who plays Galadriel, she provides the opening narration, which I actually have right here. (laughs) I'm not going to read the whole thing word for word. What she offers is really the premise of what the story is all about, what the ring is, what it means, and why it's so dangerous. She says, it began with the forging of the great rings. Three were given to the elves, immortal, wisest, and fairest of all beings. So right there, the fact that the elves, of which she is one, they're distinguished as in the upper echelon at least as far as immortality. She goes on to say that seven rings were given to the dwarf lords, great miners and craftsmen of the mountain halls. And then an additional nine rings, nine were gifted to the race of men who above all else desire power. That says it all. You feel a sense of there is something that is being conveyed here about, about human nature. A sense of control over yourself, a sense of control over, over the world, a sense of control over nature. You need a sense of power in order to feel a sense of validation. Hmm. And then she says, another ring was made in the land of Modo. Modo? Modo. Help me out here. Modo? Modo. <laughs> M-O-D-O-I. In the land of Modor, the Dark Lord Sauron forged in secret a master ring to control all others. And into the ring, he poured his cruelty and his will to dominate all life. One ring to rule them all. And that's where you have <laughs> my precious. Yes. <laughs> The ring came to the This is probably the character I most closely associate with this whole franchise because it, <laughs> it's been it's been parodied so much. It's been imitated. It's been it, it's it's like one of there are many is one of the most quoted lines of dialogue from the entire franchise. The ring came to the creature golem who took it deep into the tunnels of the misty mountains. It came to me. Like I'm, Okay, that's lousy. (laughs) My own, my love, my own, my precious. (laughs) For 500 years, it poisoned his mind. And in the gloom of Gollum's cave, the ring waited 
In the ring of power, perceived its time had now come. It abandoned Gollum. But something happened then the ring did not intend. It was picked up by the most unlikely creature imaginable. A hobbit. Uh, My precious is lost! (laughs) (laughs) And then the whole thing concludes, the prologue concludes with her saying, for the time will soon come when hobbits will shape the fortunes of all. What a setup. What an amazing prologue to a fantastic movie anyway, but it really does, like you say, it just sets the whole tone of what the plot is, what the synopsis is by that whole scene with the elf and human um, collaboration, for lack of a better word, to take on Sauron and bring peace to Middle-earth. And like you say, about the, the power and how it corrupts humans and the men of the world and what they can do with that power. It's just an, an amazing intro, and it, it does include some really good battle scenes and, and great visuals just for the, what is essentially just a set-up scene for the beginning of the movie. But it does state everything you expect of it. What what's to come? Why they're doing the you know the the journeys that they're about to go on? It all is all explained in that initial intro, and it's just a fantastic start. It is. It's such a great impetus to this journey of self-discovery that not just Frodo goes on, but Sam and even to an extent, even even Gandalf, even Gandalf. I think you know. None of these characters are static. They all change by the end of the story in so many different ways. And a story that cares enough to provide details to get you emotionally invested in the cat. You care about what happens to these characters. And I think the fact that they they insert these little moments that might appear on the surface to be just throwaway moments where two characters might look at each other, give each other a smile of affection or say something nice to one another. You'll have a reaction shot. And then the action will kick in again. There are some filmmakers who probably couldn't be bothered with that. They would think that audience, they would assume that audiences would just want to see the action moving. But when you have that emotional connection established between characters, that makes a story worth investing your time in, especially when it's three hours long. (laughs) Yeah. If you're going to devote that kind of time to a movie, you want to feel like there's a reason to do so. You want that set up for each character. You want the backstory. You want to have an emotional connection to these characters. If you're going to be expected to sit there for you know a good few hours and, and watch this journey unfold in front of your eyes it's important like you say the the, the establishing of the backstory the characters they're really well done and that initial beginning which after the main credits have started you've got straight away you go into the shire where the hobbits live and a place called hobbiton which is where they all interact with you you get them going to a celebration you see certain characters being, being brought in their backstories explained straight away why they're there, who they're there for. And it just it's just a great start. Hobbits themselves are very unusual looking characters. They're short, long feet, hairy, curly hair, but live a great life. You know, they're all drinking ale, they're f- harvesting their crops, they're, they know everybody. It's like a really well-contained like town and village. Peaceful folk that are about to go into a very scary world, and we're going on that journey with them. It's almost utopia. They're happy. They're content. They're simple. You know, there's not much going on upstairs in terms of, like, they wouldn't be able to sit down and graph a parabola, but they still have the, <laughs> but then again, neither can I. <laughs> they, <laughs> they still have this, there's something that is just so worthwhile about them. And when you have Gandalf, the wizard played by Ian McKellen, he 
sees the value in these creatures. He chooses Absolutely. to spend his time with them. He's good friends with Bilbo. Then he's good friends with Bilbo's nephew, Frodo. He doesn't have to be. He can easily cast them aside as these peasants, simpletons. And instead, he sees in them a chance for greatness. That's, I think, what Lord of the Rings really... There's, there's, you see this really a lot. I mean, it's not formulaic with Lord of the Rings. It's formulaic with other kinds of stories. But the whole notion of... It's, it's like a trope. The whole trope of having a character who is very simple, very naive. The hero, in this case, Frodo, has absolutely no idea what fate has in store for him. Is destined to do something extremely worthwhile and meaningful for the entire world has this older mentor, if you will, someone who takes him under his wing, looks out for him. And you have that with the dynamic between Frodo and Gandalf. It's similar to Harry Potter and Professor Dumbledore. Dumbledore. Yeah, yeah. And it's similar to Luke Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi. And then later on, Rey and Luke Skywalker. King Arthur and Merlin. It, it's, a, it's a repeated trope, but damn it all, it works. <laughs> you, st- you still you still you you go for it because there's just something very appealing in terms of a reassurance of this character may appear to be nothing but there is so much more to it and when you see frodo having these little moments of triumph throughout the entire trilogy not just this first one there's the payoff but i will say this like the the way it was shot obviously the hobbits themselves are short in stature so are up to maybe waist height on an average human and obviously the way these shoes Gandalf Ian McKellen's character going into the Shire and interacting with the Hobbits on screen. It's done so well. Close-up shot, yes, we can tell it's a child or a young actor in a costume for the rear shots, but when it's when they're actually filming together, obviously, the way they do it, they have the, the uh, Hobbit actors quite far back in, the, in the, the foreground, but the way it's shot, it makes it look like they're both stood next to each other, but the height differences are, are apparent. It's really well done, and, and you believe it. You don't get the impression of this guy stood, you know, 10 feet behind me, but it looks like he stood next to me kind of thing. It looks like the, the right height. And again, it's a nod to how well Peter Jackson had the, the vision to see it through. It's a great opening scene. Gandalf arrives at the Shire just to help the, cele- the celebrations of, of Bilbo uh, be having his, uh, I think, was it something like his 111th birthday, something like that? Because he's kept this ring. It's kept him youthful, although, he, although he's aged well. He's still youthful in, in mind. And it's one of the reasons why when Bilbo and Gandalf part ways in the initial opening parts of the movie, he does refer to Bilbo as a dear boy. He still sees him as this childlike hobbit, a young friend of his, which is all later kind of introduced to us with, with the Hobbit franchise, the prequel series, which they still they still have scenes together and he's younger in that film. So he still sees him as this young hobbit who he's known for a long time. And even though we can see Bilbo on this movie as a much older man, like I said, he's having his 111th birthday. He still refers to him as a dear boy, a dear friend of his who's youthful. So it's it's good that they've still got that kind of mentality of he's still just a kid, really, still just a young man, even if he is older, because Gandalf himself is quite old. So yeah, it's, it was a nice little little nod to the youthful element of his of his life. I thought so. A very paternal kind of a figure in his life. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think anybody would look at that kid who's, you know, coming of age and you think to yourself, oh, wait a minute, weren't you just watching Elmo two days ago? So, like what you were saying, it's kind of like that, you know, when you build was 111 years old, but he still looks up with, I don't want to say puppy dog eyes, but to an extent, maybe he still looks up to Gandalf. He feels protected by him. 
And I'm glad you mentioned. I, sh- I should say as well. Sorry to interrupt you. Um, Gandalf had the most amazing fireworks I've ever seen in my life on the back of his cart. Oh my like God. one that went up and became like a dragon and scared the whole town, then just went and exploded everywhere. You could not get that on a New Year's party anywhere. Great fireworks. Just want to say. Magic Kingdom, eat your heart out. <laughs> exactly. Take a, take a lesson from Gandalf. Okay, Disney, you're listening. Get his fireworks. They're amazing. Glad you mentioned that scene with the with that moment between Bilbo and Gandalf because I wrote down here I have a few scenes that I wrote down as my favorites and that is one of them. One of my favorite scenes is and this is at the beginning of the film when Bilbo decides it is time to get rid of the ring. He knows it's time to leave. I've lived my life and I know it's because of the ring and he knows the dangers associated with hanging on to the ring. So he's walking away from it. And like you said, Gandalf turning to him, Bilbo looking back at him, you just can see it in their eyes. These are no, I mean, this is Ian McKellen. And I mean, these are no schlocky actors. I mean, these are people who are really professionally trained. It, it comes across on screen. And it really works in that scene where Gandalf is saying to Bilbo, they're saying their goodbyes. And Bilbo walks off, Gandalf turns around and goes back into his house. We're maybe 15 minutes into the movie at that point. <laughs> And you're already feeling sad. You're feeling the sense yeah. of, oh, they just padded ways. And it's like, okay, we just met these characters eight minutes ago, but you're still feeling for them because you can see that it's a, a bittersweet farewell. This is a really good testament to how well it's made. If you can grab your attention in 15 minutes and feel a connection with characters, you know you're in for a good, a good movie, a good, a good enjoyable journey to go on. Another one of my favorite scenes is when Gandalf is saying to Frodo, Bilbo is your uncle Bilbo has left and everything that he owns is now yours, including the ring. Keep the ring secret. Keep the ring safe. Keep it sealed up inside this envelope. Once he's away, once he catches on to what the ring is all about, Frodo doesn't want it anymore. He tries to give it to Gandalf. Gandalf, you know, take it, Gandalf. You know, you must take it. And Gandalf says, no, 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 Don't offer it to me and don't tempt me. I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe. And then Frodo says, but it can't stay here in the Shire. And Gandalf says, no, you're right. You've got to, you've got to leave and leave now. Get out of the Shire and make for the village of Bree and I'll be waiting for you. What was the name of that inn? It was, was called the Prancing Pony. That was the name of the inn, right. I'll be waiting for you at the inn of the Prancing Pony. Oh, sounds epic. I would love to see the stationery that comes with the inn at the Prancing Pony. Make your friends I back home. I don't think they had stationery back then. Was the pity. <laughs> Frodo agrees, and then the pace picks up, the music quickens, he's packing all of his stuff. But then again, it goes to that. My favorite, one of my favorite moments is you have the tens of music coming in. They stop what they're doing. They look at each other. Gandalf looks at Frodo and he says, my dear Frodo, hobbits really are amazing creatures. They can still surprise you. And Frodo looks up. It does. Frodo smiles back at him. And then that's when, you know, (laughs) that's when Sam decides to destroy the moment by being hurt outside the window. The mighty Samwise Gamgee played by Sean Astin, who in my head is still Mikey from the Goonies. Yes. In, in my head anyway. <laughs> he has done a lot of other work since, but you know, he's always been a Goonie to me. I should say as well, um, they did really well at British accents. They, most of the cast were voiced with an English or British style accent. I guess for the purpose of the Lord of the Rings, it comes across very much like a, a UK based kind of world, you know, it's with all these kind of medieval style sort of visuals, it's almost like an English accent. Game of Thrones, for example, 
a lot of the protagonists and antagonists were UK voiced because, you know, people love a British bad guy and a British voice. So kind of went to that. I don't think, you know, Australian, American, alternative accents would have worked in this particular world. It was very kind of, it had to be a kind of British accent because it's world renowned and people kind of relate to it. Yeah, it was it was great that the American actors came in and did a really good job of you know portraying a, a British accent. It's it's um it was appreciated, especially by the likes of me. Yeah, it was right through. I don't think there was alternative accents by any character in the in the whole bunch of movies. They were all kind of again UK British sounding, and it it was a good job played by all. I, I thought. The film was perfectly cast. There was no weak link in the entire bunch, I don't think. No, an amazing bunch of uh, actors with, uh, you know, high-end ones. You, you're talking, like you say, Serene McKellen, Elijah Ward, Orlando Bloom, Viggo Mortensen, Hugo Weaving, Sean Bean. I mean, these are really high-end mainstream actors that have been in an amazing series of movies and TV shows. So you knew straight away that the, the amount of class of acting on screen was going to be phenomenal. It really is. When you have Kate Blanchett agreeing to be an elf and provide a voiceover narration for the beginning of what is aiming to become a really big, sprawling epic, you nailed it. I suppose when you, when you pitch the idea of what the film's going to be about, any actor's going to think, I'm not too sure. But those of them that have read the books, those of them who've seen how popular you know, fantasy movies are, fantasy books as well, it was a no-brainer for anyone to sign up. And the, the cast that he's used, the actors, the visuals, the, the production, it's all high-end. And it's no wonder it won so many awards because it, it's one of the most amazing films I've ever seen. And that's saying something because I've seen a lot of films, but it's got to be up there. That Well, certainly Fellowship, but the whole trilogy, the whole franchise, in fact, is epically good. Do you have any favourite scenes from the Fellowship of the Ring? Well, well, I mean, there's, there's so many to choose from, but I mean, for me, it was some of the, the more comedic scenes in there. There's one when the elves, the elves, I apologise, the hobbits get to the Prancing Pony to await the arrival of Gandalf. And whilst they're there, they have a few drinks. You know, it, it's a bar, it's a pub. Why not have some drinks? And they're chatting away. And Pippin, one of the hobbits, uh, played by Billy Boyd, comes back with a large tankard, which obviously the hobbits are small, so any glass or cup would look big to them. And uh, Mary says to him, what's this? This is a pint. <laughs> it comes in pints. I'm getting one. And I felt the same when I had my first drink. Oh, I was like, oh, hello. <laughs> it comes in pints. I can imagine the excitement of a, of a, a small-sized person getting a big, massive pint of ale and enjoying it I did laugh I must admit the fact that they had never never, never seen a pint before and they were just mesmerised it comes in pints like yes yeah, straight away I know exactly what, what to think about this one they just like drinking and like you said earlier they were talking about breakfast second breakfast elevenses brunch lunch afternoon tea and so on they just like to consume a lot of food and drink and it's a great lifestyle to have that certainly jumped out at me um, just again because of the comedy aspects of it Um I, I did find that um, when you mentioned the, the, the scene with Gandalf um, and Bilbo, we, we have obviously discussed it, but um, 
the, the bond between them already. But I seen for me specifically about Gandalf, and it's quite a way into the film, so potential spoiler alert here. But there's a scene when Gandalf parts ways with the rest of the group, and quite quite a cool scene involving certain certain characters. But um, I felt a sense of worry when he wasn't on screen. When he, when he parted ways with them, I say parted ways, it's, it happens in a specific scene. Those of you who've seen the film will know. But I, I was worried that when he's not on screen with other characters, that the film wouldn't be as good. Ian McCallum, as an actor, is, is fantastic. And Gandalf, the character, is a great character in the in the movie, in the books. And for certain bits of the film, he wasn't in it. And I worried that it wouldn't have been as good. But all the other actors stepped up and made sure that their scenes were well-produced, well-acted, and the focus was on them. So the worry needn't, needn't have been there. It wasn't just Gandalf and friends. It was a whole plethora of people involved. So I'm glad. I'm glad it worked out. And another scene for me, it's also, again, it's, a, it's about the Prince and Pony again, but did you notice uh, Peter Jackson cameoed in it in that run-up to the Prince and Pony? In the Prince and Pony scene? Before they actually go in there, when it's when they when they get to the outskirts and there's that kind of like a kind of gate where they get, need to get permission to go in, and uh, as they are granted permission to go into the, the grounds of where the Prince and Pony and other areas are, this drunkard walks past, and it's none other than Peter Jackson, just a drunkard with a tankard of ale, and kind of goes past the camera. It's literally about a second and a half you see him for, but it's. Definitely Peter Jackson. So look that up near the Prancing Pony scene as they're going up towards the said said pub. He won't have to check that out again. And he's a bit a bit drunk and stuff, but long hair, beard, and a tanker full of mead or ale or whatever they were drinking at the time. So he cameos in it, and I like that scene because I, I looked out for the director to be in it. It's a lot like when you see Stan Lee, rest in peace, Stan, in the MCU. You'd look for his little cheeky cameo. Yeah. So it was nice to have Peter Jackson actually feature in the movie in in some sort of capacity. Um, most of the scenes, though, most of the film scream iconic images and scenes. You know, the the fight scenes between orcs and goblins and the humans are always great. The battle scenes look great. Scenes when it was visually stunning when they go to see the elves looked amazing. They were like paintings on screen. They just look so beautiful to watch. The the panning scapes over some of the New Zealand backdrops as they're as they're walking through on their journey just look amazing. It's for me, it's all about the visuals and the aesthetics in this film. Yes, a great plot. Yes, great characters, but just visually, I was in awe of some of these landscapes and backdrops. What an amazing place to be. Well, that was one of my favorite images from the entire film. You're talking about the backdrops and the cinematography, which Double checking here. Yeah, the cinematography was one of the Oscar winners. The image of Gandalf with the hat on, on horseback, riding off. It's, it's no, it's not even dusk. It's later on than that. You know, it's getting the sun's down. That image alone of him, it's a long shot. He's off in the distance and you see him just the silhouette of him yeah. with that hat. It's just so visually, it is just so beautiful the way they did that. And that is cinematography. That is editing. That's the directorial vision. That's the acting. It was the perfect storm of all of these elements coming together to create an image that, again, in the hands of somebody who had a different kind of vision, somebody who may even have been a bit more mercenary with this whole franchise, 
you know, focusing on the financial piece of it rather than the creative, the creative yeah, yeah. vision of it all. It's the small moments really that create the world. You can have the best visual effects in the world, but if you don't have small moments that really contribute to the personality of the world, then you don't have anything. Look at the Phantom Menace. Look at the Phantom Menace where the visual effects are for 1999, they may have been incredible, but there was no, there was nothing there. Yeah. I mean, admittedly, I did go to a, a premiere of Phantom Menace, which was a midnight showing, and I did take with me some Star Wars merchandise and was fully excited and then I watched the movie and I threw my lightsaber in the bin with anger because um, yeah, oh. it, was the fan- it was the Phantom Menace, wasn't it? Don't get me wrong, folks. I-, I still love Star Wars. I do love Star Wars. I always will love Star Wars. But, um, you know, I-, I can't get past Phantom Menace. Really. I'd-, I'd probably just go straight to Revenge of the Sith. At least that was a good, enjoyable movie. Just ignore those first two prequels and just go straight to what they call episode three. For the, uh, for the purists out there, there is no episode three. But um, that's where I'd start. If I was going to watch the prequel, it would just be straight to episode three and then carry on with the rest of the the trilogy, as it were. So, yeah, um, not a good story, but visually look great. A good example, like you say, that it looks fantastic, great visual effects, but you need the story behind it. And thankfully, Peter Jackson's vision gives us that. The small moments, like you've mentioned, even a simple scene of someone riding a horse over a mountain from a backlit perspective it it just it just looks great and it helps to keep you in the story you want to see areas in the world that are mentioned in the book you know they go over a certain mountain they're going through a certain valley there's a certain river they have to cross and even if it's a 30 second scene it's acknowledged and it keeps the fan base happy they're seeing things they want to see they've read about it, it helps pad the story out and make it more of a, a fun ride so yeah I think it gives the audience credit. You know what I mean? If they don't bother giving you the details of the world, basically what they're saying is audiences won't care. They'll just want the big visual spectacle. That's where the money is. That's what we'll give them. I think that one thing that Hollywood oftentimes forgets is that we really are looking for more a lot of times. We are looking for, we're looking to be able to watch that silhouette of Gandalf on horseback, the hat on, the whole thing, the, the the cape he's wearing, not the cape, the cloak he's wearing. We're looking to be able to look at that image of him, feel that affinity for him, feel that familiarity with him, feel that sense of he is a protector, feel that sense of comfort from him. We're looking for that image to have personality behind it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And Liam Neeson, for all of his brilliance as an actor, it's not his fault, just the screenplay he was given, the little he was given to do. He was supposed to be just that to Anakin Skywalker. He was supposed to be the, the father figure, the mentor, the wise one. You got green screen. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's, it's difficult when you've, you, you get told to sit on a hobby horse and pretend that you're on some kind of crazy creature with like, you know, five heads and six legs or whatever it might be. But just, just imagine that you're, you know, you're on a beach in the middle of a weird planet with six suns or whatever it might be. It's hard. Modern day, modern day movie making, it relies heavily on green screen. You can't build sets that need these things anymore. But um, it's getting in the mindset. It's thinking, I'm on this crazy beast and there's a spaceship behind me and some guys are fighting over there in, in the distance. But really, it's just me, a green wall and a camera. It's down to the actor. They've got to visualize this in their minds and make us think it's a believable journey. And... Uh, 
in many ways they do. But what can you do when it's green screen and a bad script? Sorry, everyone. Sorry, <laughs> venting there. But this is not what happens in this film or the series of films. Like we've said, we, we can't praise it enough. Fantastic writing, stunning visuals, great characters, true to page to screen translations. It's it's a winner on anyone's you know collection. Why why not have it there to watch anytime you want? Even if you're not really a, a sci-fi or fantasy fan, it's a good story that will keep you entertained, full of plot twists and turns and really good characters. And that's what it needs. Like you say, the visuals are great. The, the money they've put into it to make it look great is fantastic, but you need the character base to follow. Without, the, without good characters, there's no point having all this money spent. And again, credit to Peter Jackson. He, he wanted to make a really good story on screen regardless of how much money it was going to make or lose, um, he wants to just make a true, honest translation of a great book. And he did it really well. I keep going back to Alfred Hitchcock and the famous story about him when an actor would talk to him and say to him, what's my motivation in this scene? Hitchcock's response would always be, your salary. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) (laughs) As far as differences in uh, directorial styles, I think that says it all right there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I suppose if I, if I had to do like a Hamlet scene and they were saying, you're not going to get much more than minimum wage, it wouldn't be much of a Hamlet rendition. But, you know, <laughs> if the salary's good, so will the acting be. What do you think's your, um, your favourite character? Certainly in The Fellowship of the Ring, obviously there are more characters introduced as the films progress to the rest of the trilogy. But in this film, who's your standout character? If I had to go with a character that I love the most, one that I feel a connection to the most, it would probably be it, it would probably be Gandalf. If I had to, there's just something about him that's just warm, but he also does not take any he su- he does not suffer fools gladly. That's a quality in a person I've always appreciated. He doesn't take crap from anybody. But if I had to pick a character that I find the most fascinating or the most uh, engaging or just the the coolest one to watch, uh, Christopher Lee. Oh, I'm so glad you brought him up. Oh, oh, Saruman. Saruman, who's the, uh, the, the rival wizard to Gandalf, who can, can be easily corrupted, shall we say. And uh, a great casting choice, Christopher Lee notoriously playing Dracula in the Hammer Horror movies. And oh, yeah. a great casting choice to play a, a, an ancient wiz- wizard with an evil tendency. He was a great actor and uh, one that was a pleasure to see on screen in such an iconic franchise. Brilliant, brilliant choice. Saruman is a, is a bad egg, but uh, great to watch. He's kind of like the Hans Gruber of the piece, you know? Another, another oh. terrible British based baddie there, you know, just throwing her up there. Having yeah, Christopher sorry. Lee and Ian McKellen <laughs> acting together. It's just, it's, it's joyous. It really yeah. is. You know, these actors are, are well established. They've got an amazing array of films behind them. And obviously, Christopher Lee is sadly no longer with us, but Ian McKellen even now is producing and making fantastic films and he's still acting because he's great at it. And why not keep doing what you're good at? He's, he's truly a, a British legend and someone that is considered a national treasure, I would think. Because he's so mm. good at everything he's done. I remember one of the first times I ever seen him was in that um, 
unfortunately tanked in a box office, but Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, Last Action Hero, where oh, yeah. he, he cameos <laughs> as death. <laughs> and I know he's done stuff prior to that. That wasn't like his first movie role, but that's where I kind of first seen him in like, like a mainstream perspective. But uh, he was great. He was only on screen for about six minutes, but he kind of stole the show, the whole movie. <laughs> I mean, it's Ian McKellen, for God's sake. He's, he's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, when you certainly, see a movie um, from Schwarzenegger, you know you're charismatic. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and he wasn't even that funny in it. He was very straight-faced, obviously just like, hello, I'm death. I'm just looking around. So very monotone. And yeah, it was great. That scene just, just made the film worth watching. It was, it was, just, <laughs> it was just strange. But yeah, the, the, the scene with um, Gandalf and Saruman facing off against each other was a great sequence. You know, f- fighting using magic as the main focus of weaponry, and the abuse that Gandalf was taking via Saruman. Um, it was great. It was a great scene. I loved it. I do have to admit that it, it was a great scene, but I was chuckling to myself when I was rewatching it because he has Gandalf at one point. Gandalf is spinning around on the ground, yeah. and all I could it think really of was unusual, doesn't it? All I could think of was the Three Stooges when Curly does that. <laughs> He's going around in a circle, going. Woo! <laughs> I'm not mistaken. I think Homer Simpson did it once too. <laughs> He's probably done it quite a few times, if memory serves. <laughs> but it's all like it's, I'm looking at Gandalf, the scene that is so, you know, straight laced and dramatic. And, <laughs> and all I can think of is the Three Stooges with the way he's spinning him around. <laughs> and then he lifts him up off the ground and he shoots him up the ceiling. All I could think about was the fizzy lifting drinks from Willy Wonka going up oh. into the. Like, like, so like, good, that film. Oh, it's a great film. And I'm thinking to myself, I should not be going off on these tangents here. I should not be thinking Three Stooges and Willy Wonka when I'm trying to concentrate on these two wizards, you know, who had been friends all this time until the big betrayal. And now it's, you know, hell on wheels. It's literally, a, it was like, and to use a Star Wars reference here, it's a lot like when Lando turned on Han, you know, when he sides with Vader. We'd be honest if you join us kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, it's just, oh, I think that I think they've used it in possibly in the likes of Family Guy and stuff like that. Where if someone's like a turncoat or they've turned on you, you're kind of like, oh, you Lando, oh, <laughs> you Lando, because he he was a bad egg. Yes, he redeems himself in the following sequels, which I'm putting in heavy brackets because mixed opinions. But you know, he came back and did good. You know, and he and he he helped at the end of Jedi. You know, so we, we, mm. he kind of redeemed himself, but he still turned and turned on us all with the big baddie. <laughs> so yeah, a nice way to take Saruman and Lord of the Rings and bring Star Wars into it for argument's sake. So yeah, I like that that's happened. Tangents are good when they're productive. Yes. Um, you and I both know tangents happen a lot when we chat. Certainly both whilst recording and when we're not recording, we tend to start with one subject and then we go around the world in various subject choices. That's what tangents are like though. You, you can't script the conversation. No, and it's better when it's not, honestly. Exactly, exactly, exactly. This this movie then, it's it's essentially a big journey to go on. We know that the ring in question has to be disposed of and the lengths that they have to go to to get this ring destroyed. We meet a lot of characters on the way that join the journey that we're going on as a watcher, including Sean Bean as Boromir. As, oh, one, of the right. as one of the um, representatives of the world of men. And he's a great actor, Sean Bean. Admittedly, 
he can't really do an American accent. But you know, that aside, he's a, he's a great he's a great actor and one of the best Bond villains ever. Again, in my opinion, when he played 006, he was great in that. Loved it. I love Goldeneye anyway. So he's, he's a great addition to the uh, to the cast in that movie. Okay, you just answered my question. I was about to admit that I have not seen too many James Bond movies, and I was going to ask you which one, but Golden, the man with the golden eye. Right. No, just go, just golden eye. You almost mixed the man with the golden eye. Oh, I'm thinking of the man. Now, that, that's a great mashup there, the man with the golden eye. <laughs> I like it. Um, uh, United Ooh. Artists, if you are listening, uh, you can make us a little franchise mashup here of the man with the golden eye. I would love to watch <laughs> it. It'd be so good. But yeah, Goldeneye, Pierce Brosnan's first outing as Bond. Um, Sean Bean played 006, the previous 00, who becomes the uh, the antagonist of the movie. Spoiler alert. I should have said that first, really. But, you know, there are people out there who haven't seen Goldeneye yet. And I may have just ruined it for everybody. So apologies for that one. Um, hey, all right. <laughs> it happens. It happens. But yeah, he's, he's played some great roles throughout his time. And as Boromir in this movie, he kind of... Again, it's my opinion, but he kind of gets our kind of perspective. Like he's an outsider in terms of what's going on. He's been enrolled into this group of people, the fellowship, and wants to fight for his opinion, why he should look after the ring, why the world of men should be represented by using this ring of power and wielding it as some sort of weapon. And we're kind of taking on his perspective, kind of think his struggles of why can't he have it and what would happen if he did take the ring and try to, you know, escape with it. It's a, it's a lot of what ifs, you know. We're all going on the Hobbit journey, the main main premise of this film, but we're getting other groups' opinions on what would happen if they had the power of that this ring would give. What would it do for them and their, you know, their tribes, their cultures, their livelihoods? It's nice that he gets the kind of get our perspective and the human aspect of it. What could be done if we have this ring? And you see him being tempted and his emotional state starts to change kind of thing. And it's portrayed really well. And he, su- he suited the long hair and beard, I might add as well. It's probably a, a Game of Thrones prequel there. So he suited it. <laughs> that, that's, uh, okay, good call there. <laughs> Thank you. Game of Thrones has been thrown in there as well, yeah. <laughs> I, I have real issues with Game of Thrones. Now, I know we're getting sidetracked, but I just want to mention this. You, you've seen Game of Thrones, I assume. I have seen the first season. Okay, well, that's perfect because this this is in regards to the first season. Okay, now again, everyone, if you haven't seen Game of Thrones, this is a spoiler alert and it's quite a major one. Okay, so if you don't want to hear what's going to happen, and I'm sorry for jumping over your uh, your microphone there, Frank, and taking over somewhat, but if you haven't seen Game of Thrones yet at all, please don't continue to listen until you've gone and watched it and come back. Okay, but I'm about to reveal something, reveal something really important, right? When season four was out i started on season one i was quite kind of late to the party and um at the time i told a colleague of mine that i was about to start watching game of thrones i'd heard all the hype about it like i said four seasons have been released and i was just starting out and the first thing that this friend of mine says to me he is still a friend of mine by the way i haven't ruled him out because of this but he says season one all right okay you're just starting are you i said yeah Oh, well, Ned Stark dies by the end of it. And then just walked off. Oh, Ned, Ned Stark, obviously the character played by Sean Bean um, and, and what, an integral character in the main first season. 
I was like, are you kidding me? I've not even watched a single episode and you've already told me that somebody's been killed in it. That's important. She said, yeah, yeah, he just gets killed in it. And he did that on purpose? He did it on purpose. As, as a, well, he, it was meant to be a practical joke, I guess. Maybe he didn't realise that I hadn't actually watched it. Um, but when I got to the end of the first season and it, and it did indeed happen, my God, the wrath <laughs> I had to, I had oh to take God. to him it was shocking. I needed like a sword of my own and just to charge at him <laughs> because he ruined it for me. Because every episode was like, is this the scene where it happens? Is this the scene? And then it finally happens and I was just deeply devastated because it came through. So I wasn't happy about that. But I do love Game of Thrones, even with the last season being what it was. <laughs> sorry, I heard Apart that about that, last season. A, a great um a great fantasy series with kind of similar tones to the back tone of Lord of the Rings. You know, big evil taking over, dragons, wizards, monsters fighting, lots of big epic battle sequences. It could be it could be considered on par with some of the scenes of Lord of the Rings or certainly some of the storylines used in it. But um yeah, I, I wasn't happy when that came true. Sean Bean's great, he's great. <laughs> I had an experience like that myself once where I was talking with someone I worked with and I won't even say what movie it was, but I just simply said that this was a movie I wanted to see. And without even thinking, she turned to me and she said, oh, I love that movie. It's so sad at the end when the guy died. I looked at her and I said, oh, I guess I don't need to go rent it then. (laughs) These people, and you know who you are out there. You need to stop telling us these things. You need to let us discover these things for ourselves, okay? I have this in, um, it was Force Awakens, Star Wars Force Awakens now. Oh, no, that was not given away for you, was it? Oh, oh. well, not necessarily. One of the main characters is is killed in Force Awakens. I'm not going to say what what character, because there's people out there, again, who have yet to discover it. So... A bunch of colleagues, and I think they do listen to me from time to time on certain podcasts. So if you're listening, you know who you are. We all went to see it, and they most of them had seen it prior, but wanted to go again just to see my reaction when this particular character was killed off. Um, suffice to say, I wasn't happy when this happened, and this is all thanks to the scriptwriters, but a great reaction for everybody else to enjoy. They're all laughing while I'm like, no! <laughs> but they didn't tell me they didn't tell me so I, I'm grateful that they didn't but um, to go back and watch it a second time just to see my reaction I found that quite flattering but uh, yeah hey, if they pay money to see it a second time and they're all making the time to get your reaction from it clearly my reaction is important to a lot of people and I, I'm thankful for that I'm, I'm thankful to influence people in, in many ways <laughs> if there is an opportunity to Um. But yeah, we, we've, we've kind of got, gone off on one of those amazing tangents that we go off on. Um, That's okay. The, the journey the journey's long. It's it's best part of three hours. And, you know, we follow it scene by scene. And it's, a, again, a thoroughly enjoyable fantasy movie. Do you think it should have gotten best picture? The Fellowship of the Ring? Absolutely. I, I love it. It's great. It's visually stunning. It's 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 acted really well. It's still current. Like if this was to be released now as a new film, it would be perfect. Even 20 years later, it's still a really good watchable movie, a fantastic fantasy epic. And one that, dare I say, people are going to be watching 30, 40 years time and still be amazed by it. Well, that's what Peter Jackson said 
when he yeah. was asked why Lord of the Rings when he was first putting it into production. Mm. Or maybe actually another thing about it. Maybe he was actually asked us not too long ago, but at whatever point he was asked why, what, what drew you to this particular story? Why make this trilogy? He said that I had been waiting for years to see the film version of Lord of the Rings and it just was not getting made. I was getting tired of waiting. So I figured hell with it. I just have to make it myself then. Wow. Fantastic. And kudos to him. What he's done is given movie history something fantastic. It's, I mean, it's arguably one of the greatest films ever. Again, arguably. There are a lot of films that could be said to be the greatest film ever, but for this particular genre, for a book translation, for a fantasy epic, for something very character-driven, it's it's got to be up there as one of the best movies ever. And it cleaned up at the Oscars. <laughs> Certainly did. And well, Academy Award so. wins for Fellowship alone for Academy Award wins. It deserves so much, so much credit, so many awards. And getting ahead of it, by the end of the trilogy, and I'm referring to specifically the, Lord, the Lords of the Rings trilogy, not the Hobbit trilogy, but by the end of it, and I've, I've discussed this with you a few times, Frank, there is a key scene towards the end where I cried like a baby when I first watched it. Yeah. And I'll still get a lump in my yeah. throat now. I'll leave that for, for the listeners and the viewers to... Um, discover for themselves when they finally get to the end of the trilogy but it really does bring a tear to your eye and a lump in your throat like so like i said so long spent with each film bonding with these characters and and willing the story and the the end result to happen you do get a sense of emotion through it and again it's it's down to the amazing directing and screenplay writing to really you know drag you in and make you want to be part of it it's the art of good storytelling is what it is you know, it's not it's not mercenary. Maybe, the, of course, there's a financial interest in it. But when that's balanced out by a passion for the story you're telling, you really want to tell it. You're not just looking to make a fast buck. For some, they can go on for way too long. Some franchises, they can go on for way too long. They can be, you know, milked dry. I always use the metaphor of they always keep going back to the same cash cow. But then after a while, you just run out of milk. What I respect about Lord of the Rings, and I know that there were a number of factors, but they didn't just jump on the financial bandwagon and capitalize on the Oscar victories for Return of the King for that record-setting sweep. They didn't launch right into, okay, next up is the Hobbit trilogy. They gave us some time. I think initially it was um, something initially that they weren't planning, they were going to plan on making, but it made sense being that Jackson's vision was so good that he could do a justice on, on a prequel trilogy telling Bilbo's backstory before he settled in the Shire. So had it not been for his, his vision, I don't think the Hobbit trilogy would have been made. And he initially it's was not going time. to do it. He had said, I'm not doing it. I'm done. I told my story and I'll leave it to somebody else to tell. And there were, things were at a standstill for a while. So when it was announced that he was returning to Middle Earth, I think that there was a, a happy surprise. Hmm. You know? good, this is the one we want to tell the story. We want that continuity. We want that yeah, same quality. Again, I keep referring to Star Wars, but when they did the the uh, the sequel trilogy and it was J.J. Abrams predominantly producing it, it didn't have the same feel, the same vibe. And it's it's because of the change of director, the change of producers and so on. It had to be Jackson that came back to do Hobbit. It couldn't have been done by anybody else. Um, otherwise it would have been like a straight to DVD or straight to TV, you know, afternoon movie with shocking visuals and terrible screenplay. 
it had to be Peter Jackson's Lords of the Rings and Peter Jackson's The Hobbit. Otherwise, the continuity would have been shocking. So I'm just I'm just glad as a as a fan, as a collector, I've got entire six movie franchise where it's just a thoroughly enjoyable experience that I'll rediscover year upon year and mm-hmm. hopefully get my uh, my young children into it and then rediscover it through their eyes as well. It's a great journey to go on. So yeah, it's recommended, certainly by me anyway. And this is the perfect moment for me to say to you, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you have next to you on your desk right there? I have been building... Uh, thank you very much for, uh, for mentioning this. <laughs> um, I have been building quite a substantial collection of, of box sets and, and visual media and so on. And the, the, the chance to talk about Lord of the Rings was, was a no-brainer, but I've been sort of acquiring box sets and, um, and DVD box sets and so on to build my collection. And I've recently acquired the special edition releases of the trilogy uh, separately. Two Towers, Fellowship of the Ring, Return of the King, as four DVD set book style binders box sets. So they've got like artwork in there, art cards, a series of documentaries across the four discs. They, they're the extended version. So they're touching nearly four hours, a substantial movie to watch. But they've again added more scenes from the book that weren't in the theatrical release. So it pads it out even more with more detail. But they look like classic books. So they could look up, sit on a shelf, look like a book. But then you're surprised it's not a book, it's a DVD box set. I've also added the extended Blu-ray versions of both The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. So it's quite an authentic kind of old booky kind of looking collection, which I'll, I'll thoroughly enjoy rediscovering and reading through and collecting. So thank you for making me talk about them because I, I do love building <laughs> my collection. So pride of place on my shelf, definitely. Well, when you got them and you sent me those pictures of them, I, I was drooling. And I'll tell you, with your permission, of course, I just might have to use those photos for when I post this episode. By all means, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to take some, some better quality photos to you not show my really horrible carpet in the background. But <laughs> I, yeah, I, I'm more than happy for you to, to show some literature. I mean, they're really good box sets and anyone who, who's got them in their collection already should be proud to have them. I think now is a good time for us to transition into a segment that I've really been looking forward to for a couple of reasons. The fun facts, the behind the scenes fun facts about Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, the first one in the trilogy. I just want to let everybody know, Davey and I, we both agreed that we would each come armed with several fun facts each, but neither one of us knows what the other one is coming with. So there is the possibility that there might be an overlap. That's what happened last time you were on the show. You came on to talk about Batman and I said, oh, well... (laughs) There you go. You got the same facts. There you go. <laughs> the same ones, and it worked out perfectly because, I was like, great. Hey, you do the work for me, perfect. <laughs> but uh, it shouldn't happen this time around because I came with more than three, and I will simply leave out whatever I have to leave out if any of them do overlap. I managed to get four interesting facts. I don't know if they're going to be the same four you have, but I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll try one each and see if it if it works out. I guess I don't know. All right, let's try that. Let's alternate then. You go first, and then we'll see how it flies. Okay, so I have a fact about the the Shire. The set where the Shire is based, it's a place called Hobbiton. So that's the town where Frodo, Samwise, and so on live in this part of the Shire, which is the big, lush, green environment where the Hobbits all reside. Now, it's meant to be lush, full of greenery, plant life, and so on. 
And New Zealand was obviously the perfect choice for this because it's a very green country. There's lots of hills and roaming lands where you can put grassland and so on in there. But the set for it, or these houses that were dug into the ground and so on, was built near, now I think the pronunciation, I might get this wrong, but it's pronounced Mata Mata. It could be Mata Mata, I'm not sure. In New Zealand, where they're filming it, what they, had to do to make it, what they had to do to make it look authentic is they built the set a year before they started filming so they could allow grass and plant life to grow to make it look more natural. Now, the set still exist for visitations and people who are, uh, are fans and so on. But it just, it just amazed me that, the again, Peter Jackson's vision was to build a set that wouldn't be used for another year just to allow it to look more authentic by putting grass in it that would grow naturally, plants, trees, and, and so on, so that when they do film, it looks like it's all an already lived-in environment. Great idea to do. And it, it does look great on screen. It does look like a real village built into a hill and like it's been there forever. Just goes to show. That's amazing, because they easily could have gone in the direction of CGI. Exactly. Just go into a studio like Pinewood and just make it look like there's a hill behind them. But the foresight of building a set in New Zealand a year before, just because they knew what they were going to do, it's it's fantastic. What have you got? I'm happy to say, not that one. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) It's working. (laughs) Okay, what I have here for the first one, I'm going to take you back to September 21, 1937. The first Hobbit, not the first Lord of the Rings, but, the, but when the book The Hobbit was published. Yeah. The New York Times, the New York Times called the book of The Hobbit freshly original and delightfully imaginative. Time magazine ignored it completely. And wow. at first it was not seen as anything more than just a well-reviewed children's book. In the 1950s, the Lord of the Rings trilogy was published, and even the Lord of the Rings trilogy, they did fine, you know, not great, not terrible, but they didn't really take off until Time magazine, the very same magazine that ignored The Hobbit, reported in 1966 that Hobbits were the new literary heroes on American college campuses. Wow. They quoted a bookstore salesperson from Princeton University that the Lord of the Rings trilogy in 1966 was the biggest seller since Lord of the Flies. And when they were asked why, you know, these books are a decade old, it's now 1966, what's the sudden appeal now? They said, the students who were interviewed, they said, and you have to remember, it's the mid-60s, so they said the timing is good. You have the counterculture movement beginning to take off, Vietnam. And those students who were interviewed, they said... They appreciated the chance to escape from the complicated world of the 1960s to a world where you could share the hero and boo the villain. Okay. And then in 2001, 1.6 million copies of Lord of the Rings sold in anticipation of Jackson's, what was at the time, the upcoming trilogy. And at the time, in 2001, 1.6 million copies, that was the most copies sold during any year since they were first published. Wow, that's a great fact. It just goes to show how important the books are, as well as the films, that the sheer backing that it's been given by fans all around the world. A great story. It's enough to keep people entertained, even without the films, the books. Sold that many because of the storytelling in it, the characters, the, the visuals it gives you just by reading the pages. It's a story that had to be told, and one that's, you know, in terms of literature, it's going to be there forever. It's going to stand the test of time. There's going to be people discovering it. I hope 100 years time, 200 years time, discovering laws of the rings 
and its importance. So, yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool. I have one here. Uh, it, it mentions the um, the late Christopher Lee, obviously playing Saruman. And it says here that um, there were many Lords of the Rings fans who worked on the trilogy, but Christopher Lee was the only one who actually met J.I.R. Tolkien. He also read the trilogy every year from its original release until its death in 2015. Christopher Lee not only brought great acting skills to the film in his role as Saruman, but he also brought knowledge and true love of Tolkien and his work to the movies. So it, it's kind of like he had an insight into the pages and brought it to his character and to certain scenes because he was a true fan of the books and meeting Tolkien on a regular basis really gave him the knowledge he needed to portray on screen an amazing Saruman. What an absolute legend. And like we mentioned earlier with Bond, he did play the man with the golden gun. You know, <laughs> Scaramanga, is it? Scaramanga? Yeah. <laughs> not, not too far from Saruman, dare I say. But, you know, I don't think Saruman has a third nipple, but we'll move on straight away from, from nipples. <laughs> Please. Or maybe he does in The Man with the Golden Eye. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> 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 okay so fun fact number two that i have also has to do with tolkien okay tolkien uh when he tolkien and c.s lewis who wrote the chronicles of narnia out of yeah, the silent yeah. planet books like that the two of them met at oxford university both of them were part of the same literary club called the inklings and they would read each other's work for feedback and encouragement and they pushed each other to write more fantasy and science fiction. Okay. And then one day, <laughs> I'm laughing because I want to make sure I don't say that I can relate to this in case I have any students or parents listening. <laughs> one day, Tolkien was grading, quote, a boring stack of papers, end quote, and was inspired by one of the blank exam pages and found himself scribbling the words, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit, which was the opening of The Hobbit. So he wrote The Hobbit, the publisher asked for a sequel, and thus came the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Inspiration comes from all around. And that, that one sentence was enough to inspire all this. Oh, wow. I love that. In a wow. hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. That came from a blank exam page from what he called a boring stack of papers. Does this mean there could be potential for you to make this one line on a piece of paper? Seeing as you like to mark, you know, papers for <laughs> part of your, your job that could get you discovered and become this well-renowned amazing guy just because of a simple line i think it's possible frank i do i think it's possible <laughs> discovered. <laughs> um fact number three from me okay for the scene set on the snowy mountain of caradras i think i pronounced that right the cast were flown up by helicopter however sean bean hated flying and avoided it when he could so every day he'd spend two hours climbing the mountain in full Boromir costume to reach the spot where they were shooting. This has become one of the more well-known and loves behind-the-scenes stories over the years. All the members of the cast noted that they'd see him climbing the mountain while they were being lifted up in the helicopter to film scenes on the top. To be climbing a mountain for two hours because you don't want to go on a helicopter whilst you're dressed in, <laughs> you know, all this combat gear. Like it's a credit to Sean Bean. He was in full costume, sword and everything, beard, and he was climbing the mountain for two hours to avoid going in a helicopter. 
So I take it it was not a fear of heights if he's hiking up a mountain all the time. Yeah, I think it was just literally flying, maybe. But it kind oh. of it kind of puts me in that um, kind of Tom Cruise kind of vibe. Tom Cruise likes to do a lot of his own stunts, and there's that scene in <laughs> the second Mission Impossible movie where he's climbing up a rock with no kind of safety or security at all. It's just him and his bare hands with no wires and a camera shot from quite far away. Mm, <laughs> I just. I'd rather get in the helicopter. <laughs> I mean, Sean being fair play to you because I, I, you know, it takes a, a real man to do that every day of a, of a shooting session up and down a mountain for two hours. But if there's a helicopter there, just get in the helicopter. It'll be up there in seconds, you know. But interesting anecdote is that he wouldn't like to fly, so he climbed the mountain in his costume. I would rather be in the helicopter myself. I've, I've had a fear of heights so pretty much my entire life. You should have seen me in the CN Tower in Toronto. It was awful. <laughs> yeah, they have the... Um, I don't know if you, have you ever been. They have a section of the floor that is glass. So when you're standing on the glass, you're looking down and you see the city like underneath your feet from all those floors up. It was awful. My, my kids we laughing. Have, we have something like that over here. There's a, a, a northwest uh, attraction in a town called Blackpool. There's a tower there, the Blackpool Tower, which is kind of like a, a smaller version of the Eiffel Tower. And there's a, I think it's called the Walk of Faith or the Leap of Faith, but essentially there's a, a piece of this of this floor which is all glass and you can see right down to the the whole town but you've got to trust yourself to walk across this glass to the other side of the tower i could never do it now i know this glass is ridiculously thick and it can take a lot of weight but it's it's the it's that leap of faith aspect you know what if you're that one person who gets on it and it just cracks you know what if it's you that causes the glass to break <laughs> i could never do it Ugh, no thanks i'd rather just stay on the ground and not go up the tower thank you very much uh, well, we were at the CN Tower about, uh, it was the summer of 19, and my kids had me walk onto the, come on, walk onto the glass, my you know, my kids being all, you know, wise ass and everything, face your fear, dad, okay, yeah, okay, <laughs> so I'm walking onto the glass very gingerly, and it was not pretty, and then finally I said, okay, you know what, if I'm going to do this, go big or go home, so I sat down on the glass, and I said, okay, I said, take my picture now, Take it now so that I can prove to myself that I did this. I can just look at this picture for the rest of my life. Just take it now. They took it. I get off the glass and um, I swear to God, it was like I was the kid and they were the parents. I was seeking their <laughs> approval. I was waiting for them to say they were proud of me. And instead it was just, you know, teenage snickering and like, uh, that wasn't so bad, was it? Yes, it was. And I get over it. Yeah, I was like, thanks for your concern, but <laughs> never again. Once is enough. Yeah. I, well, we actually went, uh, we actually went zip lining, my daughter and I down the, uh, down a mountain, she, the same, same time, same place in Canada. And she said, you sat on the glass. She said, I really want to go zip lining. She was too young to go by herself. She needed an adult. My wife couldn't go with her cause she had a really bad headache. Are you telling me I'm going to be zip lining down a mountainside? I just sat on that glass. My son, he didn't want to do it. He had his phone. You see the two of us in the distance, these two little dots, me and my daughter going down the mountainside. And all you can hear is this little girl screaming, holy shit. And I will tell you this, that little girl was me. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> we'll send you the video. So as far as Sean Bean, getting back to Sean Bean, we are going somewhere with us. Going all the way up that mountain for two hours in full costume and makeup because he was one on the helicopter. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> Take the goddamn helicopter. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> getting back to the fun facts. Okay, so I have another one here. 
In the late 1960s, the Beatles, they had a three-film contract with United Artists. They made two movies, A Hard Day's Night in 1964 and Help in 1965. So they owed United Artists one more film. They didn't want to do another lighthearted romp playing themselves in comical situations between musical numbers. So John Lennon suggested Lord of the Rings. He suggested it to the other three Beatles. All three of them were all for it. He would, John Lennon said that he would be Gollum, Paul McCartney would have been Frodo, George Harrison would have been Gandalf, and Ringo Ringo Starr would have been Sam. And John Lennon wanted Stanley Kubrick to direct it. He had just done 2001 Space Odyssey. They actually met with him, but Kubrick was not interested. So in the end, the third film in the end that they actually ended up making was Yellow Submarine. In 2014, Peter Jackson told Deadline that he spoke with Paul McCartney and he said, (laughs) and I quote here, Paul was very gracious. He said to me, it was a good thing we never made. (laughs) It was a good thing we never made ours because then you wouldn't have made yours and it was great to see yours. And then Peter Jackson responded, it's the songs I feel badly about. You guys would have banged out a few good tunes for this. You were the Beatles after all. It's a shame we missed out. Oh my god! Could you imagine what that film would have been like with the Beatles in it? I mean, it's like the cancelled Tim Burton Superman Lives movie, which we never got to mm. see. Nicholas Cage would have been Superman. Yes, it might not have worked, but part of us are thinking, "What if it did get made? What would it have been like?" And I, I kind of want to see a Beatles-based Lords of the Rings movie now <laughs> and see how it would have panned out. I just oh, want to see John Lennon as Gollum. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would have been great. It would have been great. Oh my God, I just can't believe that. I have one more fact, and it's about the main actors who who were the Fellowship themselves, the main actors. They spent 18 months shooting the movie, and when you've got that much time together, you you kind of have a bond. It's expected. You you do a film for such a long time, you you develop a bond with people. The group that play the Fellowship, they're nine main actors, they decided to strengthen their bond by getting a tattoo. So they all got the Elvish symbol for nine. Nine members of the Fellowship, nine actors, they all got the Elvish symbol for nine. However, John Reese davies the actor who plays Gimli the Dwarf, didn't want to get a tattoo. So they sent his stunt double instead to get the same tattoo. <laughs> so he's the only one of the original Fellowship that hasn't got this tattoo. They often share, the actors, they often share stories and pictures of them with their tattoo. Uh, most notably, Orlando Bloom's tattoo can be seen when his when he's working in the blacksmith shop in the first Paris of Caribbean movie. You can see the, the Elvish nine on his arm, on his wrist even. Eight out of the nine Fellowship members have all got the same tattoo, except for Gimli. It kind of reminds me of Mel Brooks Baseballs when the good guys are captured. And he, he says, these are not them. You've captured their stunt doubles. It's like, oh, so good. I just think that's a really good good bonding as being the fact that they all got tattoos um, especially a cool one in an elvish language but (laughs) sorry i don't want a tattoo thanks can you let's get this guy in instead he's dressed up just like me so let's have this guy (laughs) Um, i just found it hilarious that one of the main actors decides i'm not going to do it but can you take this replacement guy instead well the stunt double was part of it so yeah yeah any any action sequence it wasn't the main actor you know it was the it was the stunt double so yeah i will be looking out for for the scene as mentioned with Orlando Bloom's character in Paris Caribbean, I'll be looking for that scene when the the symbol is shown. Because to be fair, I've never really noticed it on his wrist, but I will be looking out for it whenever I watch Pirates again. 
to see that Lord of the Rings nod. So yeah, <laughs> that'd be something to see. And yeah, I have one. Facts, I've got those four. And I have one. I have my fourth and final one as well. And it has to do with the cast. So okay, planned perfectly. For Gandalf, New Line Cinema initially wanted Christopher Plummer or Sean Connery. Oh. Speaking of James Bond. Interesting. The co one of the co-writers, Philippa, or is it Philippa Boyens? She thought of Patrick Stewart, but they then went with Ian McKellen after watching McKellen in a videotape of him performing in an acting course taught by the taught by the Royal Shakespeare Company. Hmm. Christopher Lee wanted to play Gandalf, but Peter Jackson cast him as Saruman. Daniel Day Lewis turned down the role of Aragon. Viggo Mortensen stepped into the role instead. And Viggo Mortensen never read the books, but took the role because his son Henry was such a big fan. That's amazing. Wow. Can I, Daddy, this book's great. Can you just do the role anyway? Okay, son. Okay. <laughs> just because you like it so much. Wow, Christopher Lee could have played Gandalf. That's quite surprising. He's a great Saruman. I He's a great yeah, I can see why he would want to play against type and not be the sinister one, you know, after yeah. doing Dracula and the Wicker Man and, you know, yeah. all, you know the, the Star Wars, yeah, the, the Star Wars prequels that was before, at least the first one. So I can see why he would want to try something different, but he's Saruman. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my God. Such interesting potential casting choices there, though. And I like the Patrick Stewart reference. Obviously, Ian McKellen and Patrick Stewart were together on screen in the X Men franchise. So. It's nice to have that kind of little reference there, but the Sean Connery one, though. Wow. And again, Bond's feature quite heavily in this chat, but it's nice that there's a, a little Bond connection there as well. I don't think it would have worked out. I mean, Sean Connery being being Gandalf, was it? Um, I'm not sure. Gandalf, yeah. He's got that, yeah, that's such a, a unique kind of tone and, and vocal quality, Sean Connery, but I don't think as a wizard, I, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. I mean, he was great as a Highlander, but, you know, but I don't, I don't see him as a, as a wizard. So some oh. interesting factoids there. So lots to, uh, to dive into, both on screen and behind the scenes. Dave, just like last time, just like every time they're going to be doing this again in the future, I want to say thank you for making the time, especially given our five-hour time difference, to come on Silver Screeners. It has been great to have this conversation with you, to hear your passion for Lord of the Rings and for the whole franchise. I want to make sure I leave you enough time to be able to talk a little bit about your own podcast and your own projects. Well, thanks, Frank. It's, it's obviously nice to be a guest here, and being invited on is a genuine pleasure, especially when, like I said earlier, it's, it's about subjects that I'm passionate about, like you mentioned. So thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm the host of a podcast called I Give That 10 Minutes. The premise being, give me 10 minutes. If you enjoy the content, you'll stay for longer. I tend to talk about movies, TV shows, pop culture, gaming, uh, foods, things that are going on in the media. It's, it's kind of a mixed bag. It's a bit of something for everyone. I try not to be specific in, in genres that there's a lot of episodes to cherry pick from. So there's, like I said, something for everyone, even if it's one episode in a whole bunch of seasons, there's something there that will appeal to you. And I tend to have various guests on, including Frank, and we chat about various things and just shoot the breeze about our opinions on things. It's been a fun ride. I'm still relatively a newcomer to this podcasting game, but um, I'm enjoying it. Lots of um, interaction from followers and fans. So it's a journey I'm going to keep going on. Not as long winded as the Laws of the Rings journey, because that took those guys forever to get to Mordor, but we'll get to that later. But um, certainly a fun journey. I can be found on 
most podcasting outlets, Spotify, Anchor, Google, CastBox, GoodPods. There's quite a, an array of choices if you want to listen to me. And on the socials, if you want to get involved, it's all at Davia Tenmins, Instagram, Facebook, and so on. So, you know, feel free to get in touch if you want to be a guest or send me a comment on good or bad you know, about the show because I like, I like criticism. So get me on Davia Tenmins and uh, hopefully speak to you soon and hear from you. Definitely a show worth checking out. So if you haven't heard it yet, go take a listen to it. As I say, click on that little triangle that points to the right and you'll be glad that you did. And that ties episode 40 up all neatly and happily. Again, big thank you to Dave EA for taking the time to travel to Middle Earth with me. And thank you as well to anyone listening to our conversation. Hopefully you felt like you were listening to a lively and fun talk between two guys who have a fondness for hobbits and rings and movies and podcasting. Because we do. So thanks again. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. I'd be more than okay with it if you feel compelled to rate or review this podcast on Apple, iTunes, GoodPod, Spotify, whatever platform you're using. Any and all honest feedback is helpful, and I'm open to suggestions from anybody for future episodes. My name is Frank, and until next time, keep on screening, and Dave and I both leave you now with the soothing sounds of the roaring of the orcs from Lord of the Rings.